0: Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is on the case for international equities and has been recorded for institutional and professional investors. I'm David Lebowitz, global market strategist and host of the Center for Investment Excellence. With me today is Tim Morris, investment specialist with our Emerging Markets in Asia-Pacific Equities Group, as well as Anjali Balani, investment specialist with our International Equity Group. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Happy to be here.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: So it's certainly been an interesting start to the year, characterized by you know a more resilient global economy than I think a lot of people expected. An inflation picture, which is improving, but I think that there's still some wood to chop. And a lot of questions about the future direction of monetary policy. You know, you go back to the beginning of March, The debate was whether the Fed would hike by 25 basis points or 50 basis points when they all got together. And very quickly, with the stress that emerged in the U.S. banking system, really the global banking system, very quickly the debate became between, you know, no hikes or a 25 basis point move. Now, when we take a step back and think about the broader direction of travel here, we still think that growth – will slow over the course of the coming quarters, probably will remain positive in the U.S. during the second quarter and then potentially turn negative during the second half of the year. But what I think is particularly interesting and very relevant to our conversation here today is really that the rest of the world is looking pretty good and arguably looking better than what we see here in our own backyard. And so there's lots that we can discuss around the implications of that growth. But I think, in general, we need to recognize that, you know, again, the economy has more momentum than people originally thought. That means that inflation is going to take longer to move back to levels that are consistent with central bank targets. And it probably means that while we're close to the end of the hiking cycle for folks like the Fed and the ECB and the Bank of England – we are not necessarily there yet. So again, you know, a quarter of the way through the year, we've learned a lot. And one of the other things that we've learned is that international equities are actually not dead. right? They did well in 2022, outperforming the United States. So far, we're off to a pretty solid start here in 2023. And so let's dive right in and kick off with the first question. Tim, maybe I'll start with you. There are lots of theories out there about international equities and their ability to chronically underperform. But what are some of the other myths out there that you are always trying to bust in client conversations? I think the three of us can agree that there's an opportunity in markets outside of the US. But what are some of the biggest sources of pushback or areas of
2: pushback that you get when having that conversation with clients? I think for US investors, considering an allocation to emerging markets or looking at their allocation to emerging markets and how it's performed over the past couple of years, clearly the dollar has been a headwind it's been stronger for longer than a lot would have thought and i think that one of the myths that we see is that investors think that the dollar needs to reverse course which it has to some extent recently for international allocations or emerging market allocations to outperform and the reality is is that yes that's helpful. But even just the pressure from the dollar flattening out has been a positive backdrop historically for emerging market allocations and, and performance. So, the dollar obviously being one. And, Jolly,
0: what are some of the myths that you're out there trying to bust these days?
1: So, I'd hone in on two of them. One is that a lot of clients think that growth and innovation only exists on the West Coast of this country, and I'd love to prove them wrong. I'd say the second one is that what's outperformed in the last cycle. I think a lot of clients think that that will continue to outperform for this cycle. And if the last cycle was all about intangible investments, about driving traffic and eyeballs, the world has more tangible challenges to deal with now. And that means investing in stuff, catching up with structural underinvestment, building resilience into supply chains, as opposed to purely optimizing around efficiency and profitability.
0: So I think those are both good points. A lot of this is really anchored in recency bias, which is obviously one of the biggest things that we deal with talking to investors day in and day out. I want to stick with you for a second because, again, international it's seen better performance, but that's coming in the wake of an extended period of time where we saw those assets underperform. Talk to me about the structural opportunity that you see in non-U.S. equities and a little bit about the framework that you all use when thinking about taking advantage of that opportunity in portfolios.
1: So, David, you mentioned that you've already started to see International outperform the U.S., not just in 2022, but so far year-to-date. We've certainly had head fakes before where International has come out outperforming the U.S., and then things start to reverse course. I think just broad-based, one of the reasons we think that this market cycle will be different from the prior market cycle is that no one really thinks that rates are going to go back to zero or negative as they had in the previous cycle. And International then broadly should benefit from that because the composition of our index has more financials, more commodities. So generally, higher rate or even positive rate environments should be positive for international equities. The way that we've been talking about this with clients about why international could sustain some of the outperformance that we've seen, we've been using the acronym CVS. Most of you may go there for your prescriptions. Think of this as your prescription for international outperformance. And the C stands for currency, the V stands for valuation, and the S stands for sentiment. I think Tim already talked about currency. We've already seen the dollar start to depreciate relative to other currencies. There's a case to be made for why that can continue to happen. On V, international has been cheap for a very long time. It remains cheap versus the US versus its longer-term average. I think what's really interesting, actually, is if you look at international, so just at the MSCI EFA index, international is actually cheaper than US value, the cheapest parts of the US market. And so it's not just cheaper than the U.S., but even cheaper than U.S. value. And then as sentiment, consumer confidence in Europe had gone to all-time lows last year, understandably so, war in Europe, energy crisis, zero COVID policy in China. As that sentiment starts to creep up again, that can be the catalyst that can close that valuation gap that has long persisted between the U.S. and international.
0: I like that. Definitely the medicine that some investors may need. Tim, over to you, thinking a little bit about the structural opportunity. And I know we're going to get to China in a dedicated way in just a couple of minutes. But when you take a step back, how do you think about that structural opportunity in EM? And would love to get your thoughts on whether or not that trend of an emerging middle class is still something that you all are focused
2: on when it comes to identifying opportunities. Yeah, that is certainly the case. And I think you raise an interesting point about the recency bias. And From a structural perspective, I think the perception is that with the Fed tightening that it's typically been an environment that's been a stressful one for many emerging economies. But I think this is a different part of the cycle, a different context that we're seeing at the moment, which is that actually central banks and emerging economies were tightening more aggressively and sooner and were effectively ahead of the Fed this cycle which leaves them in a pretty beneficial place at the moment in that inflation is peaking in some of these markets and they can actually, if they need to, start to loosen policy aggressively and stimulate the economy. So that's one from a top-down perspective. And the second is from a bottom-up perspective, which is that there are still significant demographic advantages in many of these markets. There are evolutions in terms of consumption patterns, particularly as discretionary incomes in markets continue to rise. That can create a very attractive opportunity from a bottom-up perspective for companies, particularly those that are very focused individually on some of these economies?
0: I think that makes a lot of sense and actually is a perfect segue into the next question. And I want to stick with you, given your focus on emerging markets. But one place where demographics aren't that great is in China. And we know China has been connected to the rest of the world in various forms and fashions for really as long as a lot of people can remember. You mentioned earlier zero COVID policy. They were very much locked down relative to the rest of the world. China's back open for business, right? That's been the story in 2023, and some of the numbers I was seeing this morning suggest that first quarter growth was actually pretty robust when all was said and done. So how are you thinking about China's reopening, and what's the impact on EM more broadly? And then would love to jump over to you and get a sense of you know
2: the impact perhaps more from a DM perspective. But let's start with you on China and EM. Simply put, China's reopening is a game changer for emerging market investors, broadly speaking. It arguably took too long to happen, but it has eventually happened. I think what we do need to recognize is that the market responded very quickly and, in fact, was actually trading up significantly even ahead of any formal announcements about reopening. So there was a lot of perfection baked into the first leg of the recovery. We're now starting to see One, some of the economic figures that you're highlighting start to come out, but also results from underlying companies about those that are capturing the reopening story quite effectively, were well positioned and have been able to execute. It's a story that will continue to play out. I think it's one that's going to drive more attractive earnings recovery, not just within China, but also elsewhere within our investable universe because the reality is is that for the region it has a significant economic impact in terms of tourism picking up, in terms of supply chain issues that we're holding back, potentially investment decisions, beginning to see some relief. So it's a multifaceted story that I think has months, if not years, to play out. Well that
0: certainly sounds pretty positive and obviously tourism is one that we've heard a lot about and kind of the increase in tourism and the beneficial impact that has on APAC specifically. What about the rest of the world? I mean, what does this mean for companies in Europe and companies in other parts of the developed markets going forward?
1: So I think the first thing to say on that is China reopening certainly benefits Europe and Japan. If you look at the international index, about 15% of our revenues come from China. And you compare that to the S&P 500, where about 7% of revenues come from China. So international broadly does benefit from China reopening. I think the second part about that, though, is if you are thinking about where do you want to access the opportunity for China? Is it by investing in China directly or perhaps indirectly by owning some of those developed international companies? We could argue that you could potentially have a little less of the volatility with being invested directly in that zip code by investing in international developed companies. Think about luxury goods, for example, in Europe. You could think about some of the diversified miners that certainly benefit from China reopening, or even if you think about some of the life and healthcare products that are selling into Chinese markets, certainly all of these types of categories can benefit from China reopening. And we've seen that come through in performance.
0: Excellent. Well, I'll let you guys duke it out separately about (laughs) the best way to generate exposure to China because the animosity in the room is, you know, I would need a big knife to cut through it. Um, (laughs) This has been a very positive conversation. And I feel like we haven't really had very many positive conversations about international equities in a while. Let's talk a little bit about the risks. And Anjali, maybe I'll I'll stay with you. What are the big risks that you see going forward? What could undermine or upend the very positive story and very useful framework that you have laid out for us today?
1: So there's obviously a lot of talk about U.S. recession, and I think – We would be kidding ourselves if we said that if the US undergoes a recession, or in other words, if the US sneezes, that the rest of the world wouldn't catch a cold. And so, with the elevated risk of US recession, that's certainly something we're looking at, we're thinking about. I think, if anything, though, even if there is that pause in terms of all of the performance that we've seen come through from international versus the U.S., we would expect that this recession is going to be a mild one. That's our base case. And we do also expect that a lot of the drivers that are helping propel international performance will come back even afterwards, even if we do have that pause. And so essentially all the drivers in place for international performance don't suddenly go away if the U.S. undergoes a recession. Having said that, yes, that would be a reason for us to watch closely and think about the types of exposures we want to have in a time like this.
0: All right. So U.S. recession being one risk. Tim, what risks are on your radar?
2: In our markets, I'd say geopolitics and regulation. And it's not just in a China-isolated situation, but clearly these are emerging markets for a reason. And if you come in expecting that it's a perfect operating environment, that there's always going to be exactly the type of rule of law that you would see in developed markets. That's just not going to be the case. As investors in these markets, though, we learn to evaluate those risks. We think about how we price them in when evaluating the underlying companies. Also understanding how some of these uncertainties from a macro perspective, if you will, might influence specific sectors, specific areas of the market, specific types of businesses. So it's an opportunity often for us to reposition and think about Is the market responding perhaps too extremely to some very short-term news? And how do we think about capturing the longer-term opportunity and some of those factors that we discussed earlier? I love that. And I think that that's a perfect place to end on, which is that
0: volatility creates opportunity, right? And without any risk, there's not any reward. And so perhaps you're taking on a little bit more risk. But as we've seen over the course of the past 12 months, the reward can be there, even though it wasn't necessarily as present as we all would have liked in the 10 years after 2008. And so, guys, this was an absolutely awesome conversation. Thank you so much for joining me and looking forward to having you back on the podcast sometime again soon. Thanks for having us. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan's Center for Investment Excellence. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes anywhere you listen to podcasts and on our website. Recorded on April 17th, 2023.
3: not for retail distribution. This communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from JP Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for informational purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own financial professional, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be appropriate to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored, and processed by JP Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https://am.jpmorgan.com/slash global/slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Incorporated, both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be. In Canada, for institutional clients' use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon, and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec, and Newfoundland and Labrador. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated. J.P. Morgan Asset Management Asia-Pacific Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, JP Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, company registration number 197601586K. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. JP Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trust Association Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau Financial Instruments Firm number 330. In Australia to wholesale clients only as defined in section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001 Commonwealth by JP Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited ABN 5514 383 2080 AFSL 376-919. For all other markets in APAC, to intended recipients only. For U.S. only, if you are a person with a disability and need additional support in viewing the material, please call us at 1-800-343-1113 for assistance. Copyright 2021, JPMorgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.